This morning, we're going to be unpacking a section of John's Gospel. If you're visiting with us, this is something we've been doing together now for, for really since the beginning of the year. And John's Gospel, in, the, in what's called the New Testament, is one of the oldest testimonies, one of the oldest stories or accounts of what Jesus said and what Jesus did, written in every word of it to try to convince people like us who read it that Jesus is worth trusting. One of the questions that this book always invites us to, one of the questions it was written to push onto us, is this question Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? It's one thing to know some facts about Jesus, some of the things that he did, some of the things that he said. It's another thing to know some facts about the effect that Jesus has had on the world, on what he and his band of followers did to change the ancient world and what has happened ever since then in light of the things Jesus did and said. It's one thing to know about him. This gospel and our text this morning invites us to consider what we'll do with him. Who is Jesus to you? One of the best ways to get at this question is to think about Jesus in light of what it is that troubles you. What difference does Jesus and what he's done and what he's said and what he calls us to What difference does Jesus make to the things in your life right now that trouble you? The text we're going to look at this morning was addressed to Jesus' closest friends at a moment when he knew they were especially troubled. And he knew that it was going to get worse before it got better. Everything he says in the passage we're going to unpack this morning is meant to give peace to those who don't have it. Everything he says this morning is meant for you to help you connect with the relevance of Jesus for whatever it is that you're facing. Whether you're hearing of Jesus for the first time this morning or whether you're a longtime follower of Jesus, his words are aimed at you not just at his original hearers. He wants you to hear these words. He wants you to accept these words. He wants you to find life in these words. He wants you to live and encounter everything in your world in light of these words. What he describes here and what we're going to look at here in a moment, what we're going to unpack together is what he wants for you, what he offers to you, and how he and he alone can deliver on what he offers you. Now, on a normal Sunday, that would probably be my outline. You know I don't work too hard on my outlines. What he wants from you, what he offers you. When I was in training, though, to be a preacher, I was told that in order for people to remember the things that you say, what you need is an outline where each of the points starts with the same letter. Now, normally, maybe I've got a little rebel streak in me, I don't know, but ever since then, I've just been kind of like, no, I will not do it. People, cheese doesn't work, right? 
or pe- people don't want that. They don't want those. And, and you have to often have to stretch it, right? Stretch the point you really want to say to make the peas work. But then there are these some weeks where in these moments of just creative energy and genius blowing through me, I can't shut down the alliteration. And so this is kind of an exorcism of sorts this morning. We're going to unpack this text together in light of a whole bunch of peas. All right? You can see them in your worship guide. I put them there for you so that you can remember them, even though, you know, with the P, what with the peas, you're probably going to remember them anyway. Uh, but they're there for you. You can follow along and take notes on that page if you need it. What I want to do to begin is, is read the entire passage that we're going to unpack this morning. Uh, then we're going to come back and break it down in three different steps that are there on your worship guide. I'll walk you through them when the time comes. Now I want to read the passage, though. And one of the things that we do here at Trinity as a way to just with our own bodies demonstrate our love and affection and respect for God's word is we stand as the passage is read. I'm going to invite you to do that now, to stand with me as I read from John chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. This is the word of the Lord. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Here's your first point full of peas. Jesus' purpose for his followers is peace. Jesus' purpose is peace. I think... I think this is maybe an obvious point, but I want to get it out there before we go any further because I believe that, you're, that we're meant to read everything in the passage we just read in light of the first line in the passage. That Jesus' statement to or encouragement of his disciples at the very beginning of the text sets the frame for everything else he's going to say. What he says to them, which hangs over the rest of the passage, is let not your hearts be troubled. Everything he says from this point forward is meant towards getting them there. Put positively what he wants for his followers, what he wants for you if you trust in him, is peace. It's shalom in the Hebrew Bible's phrase. 
It's the way the Bible talks about the world as it should be. A world of rest and wholeness. A world in which there is nothing to fear, nothing to lose, no regret, no sorrow. Peace is things as they should be. Peace is what Jesus came to reinstall. Peace is what he wants his followers to experience here and now. And this desire, this let not your hearts be troubled desire, hangs over the passage as the goal of everything that he says. Don't miss this incredible window into Jesus' love. Get this. Let me remind you, of, especially if this is your first time with us in this study, let me just set the context here. Jesus is speaking to his followers in a room that they've set apart for a special conversation. It's a conversation that takes up a huge chunk of John's story. Up until chapter 12, we're in chapter 14, what he was doing was trying to show you Jesus in action. Things that Jesus said, things that Jesus did as he went about his ministry. Trying to convince you, to point you towards the reality of who he was. Now we've taken a turn. Now we are in the room with his closest followers the night before he was to be killed. Jesus knows he's about to die. They don't know it. But he's been letting that out towards them, to them, uh, through, through the things that he's telling them about what to, what's about to come. And what he wants for them is a faith in him that won't be shaken by the disruption they're about to experience. What, st- what sticks out to me is that here, in this room, knowing that, he, that, that he's not long for this world, knowing that his friends, the very friends he's speaking to right now in this passage are about to abandon him, knowing that he's facing a brutal death Knowing it, and not in the way that a narrator knows what's about to happen, or a reader knows through the narrator what's about to happen to characters who have no idea, who are just sort of going about their business. Jesus is a character who also knows. He has the knowledge of the narrator. He knows what's coming. And knowing the brutal death that waits for him in the last moments that he has on earth, Jesus is concerned about what his friends are facing. Jesus is concerned about their anxiety. It's incredible, isn't it? That they would be anxious made sense. What they've just been told is that the one that they had left everything to follow was about to leave them. That he was going somewhere, chapter 13 has told us, that they couldn't come. They'd pinned all their hopes on him. They'd also been told at the very end of chapter 13, really, the last thing Jesus says before he says, let not your hearts be troubled. These chapter divisions were put in here much later. The original would have read just as a, as a straight conversation. So the original, just trying to pull that heading and that number 14 out of what you're looking at, it would, have, it would have read straight from Jesus predicting that Peter was about to turn on him into Jesus saying, let not your hearts be troubled. You can understand maybe why they would have been troubled at the thought that Peter, Peter of all people, would deny Jesus. He was their stalwart. He was their main leader. 
He was the guy who was always the first to speak. He was, he was the rock upon which Jesus said he was going to build his church. This Peter would deny him. What kind of horrible things would have to happen, you can imagine his disciples thinking, before Peter would deny the Lord? What's about to happen to us? They are experiencing this conversation with Jesus, not not as the culmination of Jesus' purpose-driven life. They don't know what's about to happen. They're experiencing it not as the culmination of something, but as the first disorienting cracks in the foundation of something they had put their whole lives upon, the foundation of their hopes for Israel. Another way to put it is that his friends were not getting what they expected from life. They could see that now. They weren't getting what they expected from Jesus. And Jesus isn't trying to tell them they shouldn't feel that way or that they're wrong in the roots of their anxiety. He's not trying to tell them it's all going to be fine. These things aren't going to happen. He's telling them what is going to happen, and he's calling them to a peace that holds true anyway. He's calling them to a peace that passes understanding. He wants them to enjoy a peace that won't be lost when the circumstances shift dramatically as they're about to for his friends. And he wants the same peace for you. He wants you to enjoy a calm rest that characterizes your outlook even when you're surprised, even when you're disappointed by life, even when you have no idea what you can expect from life next year, much less next decade. The key, Jesus says, is believing in God and believing in Him the one that God sent for us. But believe what about them? Believe why? Why believe in them? That's the burden of this passage, to explain, to answer those questions. Why should we believe in God and in the one that he sent and find peace there when the circumstances of our lives are shifting all around us? That's what the rest of the passage is meant to explain. On to the next P's. Jesus' purpose for his followers is peace. Jesus' promise to his followers is a place. The key to them experiencing peace, even when they're not getting what they want from life and from Jesus, the key to them having peace, even when their master is hung on a cross, is them connecting with his promise of a place. And we've got some work to do for us to taste the sweetness of this promise. God help us as we move through it. This comes out in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 14. In my Father's house, Jesus says, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Jesus seeks the peace of his friends by making promises to them. And specifically, he promises them a place where he is, that he's going to prepare, that he'll come and bring them to. 
this place that he's prepared, this place and them attaching themselves to it is the key to interpreting what's happening to them, to finding stability even when the world is turning upside down. See, his friends, they can't imagine a peace that they could enjoy in which Jesus is not there with them, in which he is not live and in person and speaking to them, in which he is not there to calm storms for them or multiply food for them or raise them when they die. They can't imagine a peace in which he isn't there in person and in power. But what he tells them here in verses 2 and 3 is that for him to provide true and lasting peace, he's got to go. For him to give them the peace that they want, the key is not him staying with them, but him going from them. He's got to go somewhere that they can't go so that he can prepare a place for them that can give them stability no matter what happens. This place that he prepares for his friends is his father's house. He goes to prepare a place for each one of them. There are, he says, in this father's house, there are many rooms. There's space for everyone who comes. We've already heard Jesus say back in chapter 6 that anyone who comes to me, I will never cast out. You come to Jesus, you get a place in his father's house. The rooms are there. He's just got to get them ready. Sometimes the house of the Lord in the scriptures is a reference to the temple. Here it's not so much the reference to the temple as a reference to heaven, to a world that he has promised to bring his children to, a place where they don't have to be afraid, a place where they don't have to worry about where their next meals are coming from, a place where they know they belong, a place free of sorrow and loss and fear. It's not exactly a reference to the temple. But there is one thing that's consistent. Just like the house of the Lord, the temple in the Old Testament, was known and made important because God was there. So this place that Jesus promises to prepare, the reason it can provide peace, the reason you want to go there, is all tied up with the fact that He's going to be there. That He comes to bring you to Himself. He is the object. It's not hard to imagine why that should make it sweeter. Any, any image you have of the sweetness of home, of a place that you know you can depend on, a place where you know you have a bed that's waiting for you, is tied up more than just the brick, with more than just the bricks and the mortar, the stuffing in your pillow, the springs in your mattress, but it's the people who are there. Either because, you know this either because you have it or because you wish to have it. Because you have tasted its sweetness or you have longed for it. But you know that home is not just a place to depend on, but the people who will be there in which to make life meaningful. And Jesus is promising this, a place that's yours, that you can depend on where I am. You can be with me. I'm going to make it ready. And if you attach yourself to this place, if this place tells you who you are, then you can have peace. You can have hearts that aren't troubled even when everything around you is getting turned upside down. To sum it up, Jesus is telling them that the reason their hearts shouldn't be troubled is he's going to prepare a place that's going to be theirs, that nothing can take away from them, that he's going to prepare, then bring them to and be with them in. 
And he expects that this place he's describing should color how they experience their sorrow and their confusion in the meantime. I think that sounds great, doesn't it? But I think also, if we're honest, it often sounds abstract. The idea of this place that's waiting for us, that we've never been to, that we haven't seen, that no one we know and have talked to has ever seen or been to, how to, how to latch on to that kind of abstract place as the thing that defines us and helps us stay stable when everything else shifts. That's a harder task. When is the last time you thought about heaven when you were having a difficult season or even a difficult day? I think that's what's helpful, though. Taking this, this abstract promise and bringing it down to earth where we can see it and taste it is what's so helpful about Jesus picturing it as a home, as a place. That's for you. A place with people who love you, who are for you, who will provide and protect you. I think, friends, one of our main takeaways here is that for us to connect with the sweetness of the promise of heaven For us to take that promise and put it into our lives so it colors how we interact with everything that happens to us. We've got to think about the sweetness of home. Because what Jesus has gone to prepare will fulfill and transform the sweetest of our tastes of home in this life. The deepest of our longings for what we may not have ever had. This promise would have been a little more concrete to the Jews that Jesus was talking to. His followers would have known what it was to have a place. More more likely, they would have known what it was to have a place by not having one. The Jews that he's come for, the people of Israel, part of their identity was being a people in transition. They were the people who had the promise of God to Abraham, a patriarch who had no particular home, who was moving around with all of his life, who lived in tents with herds and fields that didn't belong to him. This was the man that God came to and said, I'm going to make you a land where you can rest. These were the people who had the the experience of Egypt and slavery and, and liberation in their minds through the feast that they celebrated every year. They would have known that God came for his people when they were in bondage, that he freed them from the most powerful man in the known world, that he set them on a track to a land of promise where they could be at peace, where they could know what it is to overflow with milk and honey, to have abundance, not fear or want, to know that they could rest there, be cared for there, know him and have him with them there. They would have known a brief, sweet period of that rest under, the, under their greatest of kings. They would have known also from their history how short that period was. This was a people who even now, as Jesus is talking to them, lived sort of in their land, but under the thumb of an empire that was too great for them to shake off. They were a people without a place. They would have known instinctively what it was for Jesus to promise this place 
that the prophets had spoken of is a place I am going to prepare for you. We don't have that built into our DNA in the way that the people of Israel did, but I do think we can taste it. We can taste the sweetness of a place of rest and belonging, a place where we know there is something for us there, a place that roots us when we go abroad, when we experience things we didn't predict or couldn't control, a place where we are in the presence of someone who knows us and loves us and provides for us. Jesus wants this place to be where we're from, even if we haven't been there yet. I don't know what's been useful for you guys in trying to get your heart attached to this promise of place. I know some things that have helped me. I mentioned this book last week, actually, because just because it's fresh on my mind. I recently read it. Um, recently finally made my way through The Grapes of Wrath great novel, John Steinbeck, about the disruptions of the Great Depression, when people had their whole worlds turned upside down, where where generations who had anticipated the seasons of their crops and lived their lives based on the same rhythms in, in communion with this plot of land that was theirs, with a home on it that had been lived in not just by themselves and their parents, but maybe even their grandparents and their grandparents before them. They had a place, and it was ripped away from them. Forces too big for them that they couldn't control changed the game. Their skills were no longer needed. Their homes were no longer theirs. Their homes were no longer secure. The story brings you in as bulldozers are knocking over the family home. The story continues while they try to hold on to some semblance of togetherness on their way to the land of promise, to California, where they expect they'll be welcomed with open arms and great jobs and live a life in paradise. They traded the rhythms of the season and the stability of their homes for a broken down car on which they piled everything they owned. The stability of their homes was traded in for moving migrant camps full of crime. Camps that were a threat to the people where they camped. They traded a community of people where everyone knew everybody for a place where no one knew their name. Where they were feared and rejected and despised. It is a story of profound disorientation. And I don't know when I've read a story that helped me to taste the sweetness of what it is to have a home, a place that you can depend on, a place that roots you when other things shift, as much as that story did. But friends, there's a deeper disorientation that Every now and then I get a glimpse of a deeper trouble in my heart that Jesus came to solve. Honestly, there's, there's some sense in which if you have a sweet home life, you can almost be at a disadvantage 
to tasting the full sweetness of what Jesus offers you. Because the sweetness of your home life may numb you to the fact of a deeper isolation and insecurity that's true of you, whether you recognize it or not, unless Jesus is who he claims to be. Not too long ago, me and Lindsay watched uh, the movie Gravity. And I was, to be honest, pretty disappointed by this movie overall. Uh, but there was this one moment that really struck me. Not one, not, not one moment so much. It was a long stretch of the movie, but the, the scene struck me. You've got these, this is not, no spoiler here. You've got these couple of astronauts who are floating around in space on this big satellite. And they're alone. I mean, as alone as alone gets. And in the distance, what you see behind them through many of these scenes, well, if if you're looking one direction, it's just blackness and nothingness, right? You look in another direction, and it's the world, the earth, as a distant, colorful ball. And for some reason, as I'm watching this, I'm thinking about how weird it is that these people caught up here, suspended over this little ball, have a home somewhere, like a house that houses their stuff, a a bed that they sleep in. But up here in space, that comfortable world that maybe gives them security, maybe blinds them to the fact of their own weakness and smallness and isolation, that comfortable world is so far away, they couldn't even spot the country on which their home sits, much less the city or the street. Imagine how small they must feel. Moments of realization should come to us in which we recognize that on our own, we're nothing. On my own, I have nothing worth preserving and I have no power to preserve it and I have no stake to anything lasting. Not even the home that gives me such great joy. In moments of despair, or what you could call clarity, maybe you have seen that you are not the distinctly wonderful person you thought you were. Not the irreplaceable you that your elementary school teacher told you to celebrate. Unless you are. Unless, maybe, you are. Despite your powerlessness, despite how small you are in the grand scheme of the universe, despite how brief are the years, the mere breath in which you're alive in the vast span of time, that maybe, In this vast span of the universe, among all the millions and billions of people who live here, amidst all the empires of the powerful that have risen and fallen, maybe you have a home in your father's house. A room prepared for you by one who came for you, by one who died for you, by one who was raised for you to get your room ready. That's an audacious thing to think, friends. It is an arrogant thing to think if you think you deserve it. 
but a true and a glorious thing that is offered to you as a gift, a place for you because of Jesus. Now here's the last thing we need to notice about this passage. Everything about this place that he's promised, everything about the peace that was his purpose to give his followers and us, hinges on the fact that our path to this place is a person. Now that may not immediately strike you. Let me explain a little bit more about what I mean here. How we get there, the path to what has been promised to us, is a person. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 4 that they know the way to where he's going. Thomas says to him, yeah, right. We don't know even where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus says to him, you know the way because I am the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets to this place that is prepared. No one knows this peace that won't get disrupted when your world turns upside down. No one gets to the Father except through me. The path is a person. Now why does this matter? Why is it significant that the path to the promise and this peace that's offered is a person? The reason it matters is that is because of what this person must do for you. The path is not a duty to perform. The path to this place is not an idea that you master. The path to this place is a person that you trust and that you know. It matters because this person has to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I think that's the key to Jesus' claim in verse 6. What Jesus is claiming all through John up to this point, and then in verses 6 to 11, is that when you see him, you see the Father. Everything he does, everything he says, he does not on his own. He didn't choose what he was going to say. He didn't choose what he was going to do. He came so that you could be connected with the ultimate reality behind the universe, with the thing for which you were made. He wants you to see it up close and personal in crystal high-definition clarity. And he says that if you've seen me, you have seen that thing. Now, this is an offensive claim for us in our time. And I think one of the reasons that it's offensive for us to hear that Jesus is the only way to ultimate reality, that he is the only way to see the Father, is that we immediately think of Jesus and what he offers in in categories like the ones we see in other religions. So if we thought of what Jesus offers as insight into the good life, as the path of wisdom, it would be arrogant of us, I think, and unrealistic to claim that Jesus is the only way to know something that's true, to do things that are wise. I think as Christians, we can affirm that God's image is in all humans, that part of his image is wisdom and insight, that in, in traditions like Buddhism or uh, or fill in the blank, in Greek philosophy or even Enlightenment philosophy, 
some guys are onto some things. There's some insight there, some wisdom. The Bible is not the only place to find things that are true. If what we mean is that Jesus is the only place that you can find truth, the only place you can see what's good and beautiful, then, then maybe we could be accused of an arrogance and, uh, and, and a blindness to the sweetness and beauty in other parts of the world and its cultures. But we aren't claiming. Jesus here isn't claiming that he is the only way to insight into the good life, the only way to see what makes for wisdom. He is claiming that he is the only way to the Father, that he is far more than just another tradition grabbing on to whatever it can hold of ultimate reality. He is saying he is ultimate reality. Come into our world to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He is the only way to the Father and this place where the Father is because what we need is not insight, not enlightenment, not moral reform. We need rescue because the ultimate reality is not itself an idea, but a person that we have rejected, a person that we have offended, a person to whom we have preferred the fleeting pleasures of this world. And that person will be acknowledged for the holy, irreplaceable source of good and beauty and truth that he is. And if not in us, through exposing us for what we have chosen, then in the person of his son who comes and gets abandoned by God for us so that we don't have to face the consequences for what we have done. What we need to enjoy the peace that comes from God's own presence is not some new idea or some new duty that we can perform, but someone who has come for us, who has gone for us through the death that we deserve to prepare a place for us on the other side of it, who has promised not only has he gone to do that, but he's coming back for us. I will come for you so that I can take you to where I am going through the shadow of the valley of death into the place where where you can dwell with me for all of eternity. His rod and his staff, they will comfort us. He will provide for us a banquet that lacks nothing, even in the presence of our great enemy, death itself. He will make it so that we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever, where we are known perfectly, where we are loved fully, and where we are made secure with a security that even death and hell itself cannot shake. And if we can connect our hearts, friends, to that promised place, we can know a peace that nothing in this world can ever shake. But we know it only through His grace to us and only as His Spirit gets us there. So now we pray together. Father, we want to taste of it. So fight through all the things that were distracted by this morning all the cares that were weighed down by this morning, all of the misplaced affections that are stealing the joy that could be ours in you, and by your Spirit, bring us to this place of rest. For your name's sake, in Jesus' name, amen.